This episode is brought to you by Peacock, presenting critically acclaimed originals for your Emmy consideration. The idea of playing somebody who existed, it's, uh, I was just fraught with, with insecurity because I, I just wanted to do her justice. I just, I wanted to, um, to do it right. And maybe in some, some way, if possible, make her proud or make her family proud. Hello, and welcome to The Awardist from Entertainment Weekly, taking you inside this year's top contenders for the Oscars and more of the industry's biggest awards. I'm Clarissa Cruz, EW's executive editor, joined as always by my co-host David Canfield, EW's movies editor. And back with us again is our awards expert and resident Penguin Bloom stan, Joey Nolfi. Hey guys. Hello. Hello. Is this some sort of psychological experiment where you think I won't reference Penguin Bloom just because you brought it up first? <laughs> I don't know. We're about to find out. Yes, you are. (laughs) Today, Golden Globe nominee Amanda Seyfried joins us to discuss her performance as Marion Davies in Mank, which EW is predicting will net the actress her first ever Oscar nod. But before we get into that, and speaking of EW predictions, it's time to get into our final predictions ahead of next week's nominations. For months, David and Joey have been updating who they think will be nominated in the major categories on EW.com, and they're ready to give us their official final picks. I'm so excited. Um, so yeah, yeah, let's get right into it. Um, so let's start with Best Picture, the, the big category. Um, and I'm going to list your predictions in order of likelihood. Okay. Number one, No Man Land. Number two, The Trial of the Chicago Seven. Number three, Minari. Number four, Mank. Number five, One Night in Miami. Number six, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Number seven, Promising Young Woman. Number eight, Judas and the Black Messiah. And number nine, The Father. Squeaking in, number nine, The Father. Yes. (laughs) The daddy, as we've been calling it. The (laughs) daddy. Anthony Hopkins is daddy in The the Daddy, yes. Um, Yeah, this, this list... I would say if if you looked at our list from a month ago, Joey, it would be not too dissimilar from this. Um, we've, yeah. we've, we've seen Promising Young Woman rise. I think we've been a little up and down on The Father and Judas, which perhaps um, why those are the, the bottom three on this list. I think the top six we've been very steady on. Yeah. Um, what, what, what do you think about this nine? Do we think, do you think we're going to have nine? Um, this is the last year in which we will not have a full 10 best picture nominees. So this, this wonky. Yeah. Why is it? Why is that? Because, well, that's the way that the rule has been for, for a few years is that it's a sliding scale. It can be anywhere between five and 10 based on the preferential ballot. Uh So there's not a guaranteed number of slots. And the, I believe the last time that they had the, the hard 10 was 2009, I think, or 2010. Um, but since then, it has been a sliding scale based on the preferential ballot. And the rule changes for next year stipulate that it will be back at a hard 10. So this is the last year for the sliding scale. Got but it. I do see this um, going to either eight or nine. I wouldn't be surprised if we only get eight. That seems to be the number that has been hitting a few times. Uh, the the you know Judas being so far down on the list, I think that's the one that we could see surge a little higher on the ranking after nominations are announced, assuming it does get a nomination. Uh, that's the one thing I have my eye on because the movie just came out on HBO Max. It's building buzz right now. Daniel's win at the Globes. It just, it, I think it has the most ground to gain. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I know that we're both also keeping an eye on Minari, um, we, which we have very high on this list, particularly because of the SAG nominations. Though again, SAG does typically see things very early and their voting base and nominating committee usually reflect a more general taste because they are so huge. So this is a good indicator of what plays well with the average Academy member. But I still think that we're dealing with a very old, very traditional voter base in the Academy that still fuels something like a boys club movie like Trial, even higher on this list. So that's why I have not been keen to put Minari over it. Yeah, I I agree. I think that um, it it feels like the sort of default second choice and you rarely see a, a best picture race with two, you know, a Nomad Land of Minari, I think, have a lot of crossover appeal, um, unlike a trial or a mank, um, which which has been bumped, I think, back up to four. Yeah. Uh, it was blanked uh, at the Globes, but it still, still did receive the most nominations there. It's done very well at the Guilds, which doesn't necessarily mean a ton when it's such a craft movie. We've also seen News of the World do pretty well with the Guilds, and that doesn't necessarily translate to a Best Picture nomination. We're not predicting news of the world right now. Um, But I I do think a movie like Mank, um, it has proven um, it has enough appeal to enough people um, that it can, it can really surge with, with, with those for whom it is, it is just the right movie. Um, One Night Miami and Ma Rainey's Black Bottom are in a sort of interesting place too. They, they are also quite similar movies, um, stage adaptations that are really about, um, you know, black celebrity, black uh, masculinity, um, they've been showing up everywhere they've needed to. I, I don't think that they have anything to worry about. Um, yeah, I think that the real question is how many nominees we're going to have. Uh, mm-hmm. It's been eight or nine, I think, every year since they instituted yes. that rule. Mm-hmm. Um, Promising Young Woman feels pretty safe to me at this point. Those are the only, I mean, Promising Young Woman and Minari are the two that I think feel most to me like movies in a regular quote-unquote regular oscar year that probably wouldn't be in this conversation i Mm. think minari maybe because it's a24's really only big push but um i don't know if that would have been the case in a different year so those are the two that i am you know i wouldn't be entirely surprised a promising young woman doesn't uh make it onto this list because I think it is a movie that, like I've been saying for the past few weeks, really has benefited from being the movie that a lot of people are talking about and was really buzzy and just shot straight up on people's interest list uh, right when it came out. So I wouldn't be surprised if we're now seeing the sort of back end of that and that dying down as the Academy sort of gets its hands on it. So I think that there's just a lot of, I'm not saying that I'm ready to predict it out yet or anything, but I just think I wouldn't be surprised if something like that ends up registering lower than what we're predicting right now, Um, because the Globes are very impressionable. So, you know, they're in tune with that buzz and um, it could be falling off. We're just not seeing where it's falling off yet. Yeah, I think so too. Of the movies we haven't included here, I think Defy Bloods is probably the most eye-catching. It's on... I think it's still on most people's lists. The difference is that once it missed WGA, um, despite the ineligibility of movies like Mank and Minari, it was a real warning sign uh, because Spike Lee, of course, won a screenplay Oscar just a couple of years ago. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think we're, we're seeing, you know, also with Delroy Lindo missing SAG, just these, these little hints that you follow to a movie, maybe not having the support it needs to, to go the best picture distance. I'm also interested in sound of metal, which is, um, a movie that has shown up in more places than I thought it would. It was the Critics' Choice 
in that top 10. Um, it still feels like a, a largely an acting play to me in addition to, to best sound, which I think it's, it's a lock for. Um, but Joey, do you think that ha- that has any heat here? Do I? Do you? What have I been saying to you for weeks and you have been pushing back on so much of I, Sound I'm of Metal? I'm throwing to you. I'm, I'm, I know, I'm, no, I know, I'm I know. giving you this. Yes. Um, oh, thank you. Thank you, David, for giving me what yeah. I've been saying for weeks. Uh, yes, I do. Uh, Sound of Metal is one that I have been paying very much attention to recently. I have just had a feeling about that one. I feel like that's a movie that just immediately grabs hold of your emotions and it doesn't let go. And that is the kind of movie that Academy voters like. So, um, yeah, I, I would not be surprised if that shows up at, at number nine over The Father or... I mean, it just there's there's so much that could happen here because it is such an unstable year, and there's not really a precedent to go on. So there's a bunch of different factors working for a bunch of these movies: statistical, some not, some more emotional. So I don't know. I I would love to see Sound of Metal get in over some of the other movies that are on this list, but uh, yeah, I think that the the nine that we have is a pretty safe one to go with for right now. I think so too. So let's move on to Best Director. At number one, you have Chloe Zhao. Number for No Man Land. No Man Land. Uh, number two, Aaron Sorkin for Trial of Chicago Seven. Number three, David Fincher for Mank. Number four, Regina King for One Night in Miami. And number five, Lee Isaac Chung for Minari. So these are all, of course, predicted to be nominated for Best Picture as well. Um, every once in a while, they'll nominate someone really out of that field, like uh, Powell Pawlikowski was nominated for Cold War. Uh, that was quite a quite a shock. Um, I don't think that that's going to happen this year. Uh, it doesn't seem like there's any movie, unless say like a Mank miss Best Picture, which we're not predicting. Uh, it feels safe to say that there there will be complete overlap there. Um, Joey, we have we have Isaac Lee Isaac Chung at number five. Mm-hmm. Um, who do you think takes that spot? Um, if if he if he, do, if he misses. Um, if, if Lee misses, I would go with either Emerald for Promising Young Woman or f- I think more likely would probably be Florian Zeller because mm-hmm. Florian feels to me like the Powell of this year. feels like if, if you know, um, because let's say the father doesn't make it into Best Picture because we do have it last on our ranking, I could still see the director's branch going for somebody like Florian. I think the DGA is really going to give us I think the five at the DGA this year will be the five at the Oscars this year. Mm -hmm. Uh, So I don't know. This is such a weird race. I mean, like you're saying, the director's branch, it likes to throw a curveball here and there. Sometimes we see these really weird one-off nominees. Like, didn't David Lynch get in for something one time when the movie got literally no other nominations? So they like who they like, whether it's a well-known director or somebody who just made a really great movie that they sometimes just like to throw a bone to. Um, the, you know, the only thing that makes me second guess some being more confident in somebody like Emerald who made a really cool movie that is creating a huge conversation based a lot on her directorial stamp is the fact that the director's branch is still such a boys club. I mean, the director's guild nominations, like I said, will tell us, I think what we're going to see for Oscar here, but I, I just, I know that the director's branch is, is, is very much a staunch boys club. So Hmm. It's interesting you say that about Emerald because I think the opposite of that, a movie that isn't as much, where the directing doesn't necessarily feel as present as Regina King's One Night in Miami, yep. 
Mm-hmm. Um, a movie that I think we we agree the Academy's really going to go for, but even yep. so, I think they really went for Marriage Story last year, but Noah Baumbach was not nominated for Best Director, I think, for that same reason. Um, but we've talked about this a lot, and I do think that there, the difference is that Regina King is, is Regina King. She won an yes. Oscar just two years ago. Uh-huh. Um, she is so beloved in this industry, and it is considered a real triumph, uh, you know, shifting from actor to director, uh, making that feature debut um, to such acclaim. Um, I I do think that pushes her over the finish line in a way that, you know, if this were someone known for filmmaking, um, making this movie, I don't necessarily know that they would, they would get that same recognition. Fully agree. Yes. 100% agree. And then I think it's also going to benefit her. Um, I know that the director's branch only votes on the nominations, but when this category opens up to the entire Academy, I think we could see Regina King pick up more heat in that sense too, because the actor's branch is going to go wild for voting for her for best director. So she could, if she gets a nomination, she could be a real threat to, um, to Chloe, I think. Yeah. I love it. I love it. Two women battling it out. Um, let's move on to best actress. Um, and I think this category just got really exciting. Um, but you tell me, um, (laughs) we have there at number one, Carrie Mulligan for promising young woman. Number two, Andre Day for the United States versus Billie Holiday. Number three, Frances McDormand for Nomadland. Number four, Viola Davis for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. And number five, Vanessa Kirby for Pieces of a Woman. Uh It feels like such a clear five that it's almost begging for (laughs) someone to miss. And at this point, it looks like Vanessa Kirby would be that person. We talked about this a little bit last week. Um, But I just don't know. I mean, do you go for Amy Adams for Hillbilly Elegy? I feel like Michelle Pfeiffer's hopes were dashed dashed when she lost the Globe. I just think Malcolm and Marie has no awards heat whatsoever. I don't think Zendaya really is is a factor here. Meryl Streep couldn't even get a Golden Globe nomination for The Prom, Um, nor could Sophia Loren for The Life Ahead. I mean, I mean, who... (laughs) Who is there to take a spot here? Uh, I just think it's every time we talk about the life ahead, I just cackle <laughs> at myself because I just keep calling it that flop movie as, as if like Sophia Loren's return to cinema is that flop movie. Um, but uh, I mean, we can look forward to Diane Warren hopefully winning for that movie, carrying the torch for the yes. life ahead. Uh, for this category, I still, I've, as I've been simmering on it, I, am, I still have my eye on Rosamund Pike. I think that mm-hmm. I care a lot is still going strong on social media with a great uh, win at the Golden Globes right before Oscar nominations voting. So I, I still have my eye on her. Amy Adams also could show up, but SAG is one of, on the one hand, super accurate because it has crossover with Oscar membership and often votes in a vacuum way earlier than others. So they often have more organic taste, but that can also lead to really strange nominations that don't go anywhere else, like Sarah Silverman and I Smile Back, Emily Blunt and The Girl on the Train. So is Amy Adams one of those? I don't know, because she has a much higher sort of acting, I think, uh, do we want to say clout or pedigree than, than those two, maybe? Because she yeah. has so many past Oscar nominations. So who knows if, if that nomination at SAG was that, or they really did love that performance. So... I don't know, but yes, Vanessa seems very, very on very shaky ground here. So I think, but I don't see Michelle. I mean, I know that. No. You, yeah, Michelle. No, no, no. I out. agree with you. Zendaya's I, I, out. Yeah. I'm just going through the list. I'm like, I don't know who else. If it's not Vanessa, yeah, who? Rosamond and Amy are the only two that really make sense to me. 
I agree. I think Rosamund's would be a fascinating fifth nominee. I feel like we can agree it's going to be a Netflix actress. Yeah. It seems uh, like that slot, they've had so many contenders come and go. You know, Zendaya is another one who for a week or so was very hot in this race. Uh, that slot has perhaps belonged to them, and I don't think they know who it's yeah. going to be. Um, but Vanessa's still the safest bet mm-hmm. of the three. Um, it's it's the kind of performance and the kind of moment for an actor that I think the Academy would want to honor. Yeah. Um, so I think that's why we're there. We know it's not going to be Sophia Loren. That, that we know. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, let's move on to best actor. I, I don't know. After the Globes, this is feeling more and more like a lock to me. But let's uh, let me run down the list and and see. So number one, Chadwick Boseman for Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Number two, Riz Ahmed, Sound of Metal. Three, Anthony Hopkins, The Father. Four, Gary Oldman, Mank. And five, Stephen Yoon, Minari. Mm. What do y'all think? Who is that number five? I, I don't know. Um, I, I, I agree, <laughs> Clarissa. I think Chadwick Boseman has this locked up after that. Definitely the highlight of the Golden Globes was that just stunning speech uh, by, by Chadwick's widow. Um, and, you know, that's just the way that this race has been going. In terms of who could possibly overtake uh him we've talked about riz and anthony um i just don't think that it could happen um i'm just more interested who could get that fifth slot (laughs) obviously joey and i were not high on steven yun's chances a couple of weeks ago but we are now predicting him so Mm -hmm. he's there (laughs) yes he he certainly is and i think that i do feel pretty safe well, I don't know. Do I feel safe about anything in this race? As soon as I start to say I feel safe about it, I immediately don't feel safe about it. I've got so. one name that I, I really do want to put forward because you mentioned, Joey, it's the movie that stands to gain ground, and that's Judas and the Black Messiah. Lakeith. And Lakeith Stanfield was not is not the story of that movie. He's not going to win the Oscar for that movie, but he earned great reviews in his own right. Mm-hmm. And one important thing to keep in mind is that movie is the one that stands, as you say, to really push forward and surprise. Um, I think of like, you know, this was supporting, but um, when Tom Hardy was nominated for The Revenant after not showing up there, that was a late breaking moving forward. Miss Marina. Miss Marina in Roma. Like those movies that really have have momentum on their side. Obviously we're not predicting him right now. I think, at this point, the SAG five is the safest five, and that's yeah. who we have uh, predicted. I'm hoping Delroy Lindo still has a shot, um, even if Defied Bloods kind of tanks otherwise, because he's so phenomenal in that movie and, mm-hmm. and had so much goodwill going toward him into this race, but he just hasn't landed as I think people um, yeah. thought he would, as we thought yeah. he would. Mm-hmm. Okay, I'm done with the men. Okay. <laughs> All right. Well, I think we're going into Joey's favorite category anyway, which is best. He knew that when he said that. (laughs) (laughs) Best supporting actress. Um, One, Glenn Close, Hillbilly Elegy. Two, Olivia Coleman, The Father. Three, Yajang Yoon, Minari. Four, Amanda Seyfried, Mank. And five, squeaking in, a little surprise here, uh, Jodie Foster from The Mauritanian. Joey, weren't you saying that Maria Bakalova is the category frontrunner a week ago? Um, Excuse me. You were on that train, too. Until about <laughs> six days ago. So what happened? What happened here? So David and I had a very heated conversation, <laughs> this morning. Um, and I'm just 
I'm so conflicted over this chaotic race. I, the other day, I was completely convinced Maria was still getting in. And now, mere days later, I am paralyzed with fear, thinking that she is the Jennifer Lopez of the year, racking up Critics' Choice, Golden Globe, SAG nominations. But I think now she could potentially ultimately miss because I think the reason why Jennifer Lopez missed was because people were not taking that performance seriously because of the film and also because of who Jennifer Lopez is. Um, I, and I think yeah. that they could have the same feeling about this because it's a mainstream comedic film. They might not take it seriously enough, especially those older Academy voters. And an interesting t- statistic is a Best Supporting Actress winner at the Golden Globes has not missed a corresponding Oscar nomination since Catherine Ross for Voyage of the Damned in 1976. And that is a huge stat wow. for Jody to break. And I know it's an unorthodox year with the pandemic, but again, Jody has a very huge victory on a major television network at a major award show right before Oscar voting. So she's on their minds in a year when people are relying on the precursors to tell them what to vote for in a chaotic year. And that is a huge statistic to break. Wow, look at Joey bringing up the history. I love he, it. He came ready. He <laughs> came ready. And, and he, you know, he's right. He convinced me. I, I, I didn't want to take Marie out and, and we had gone back and forth, I think on almost every person we're predicting on maybe they miss, you know, but yeah. I, I think one thing you have to keep in mind in this category is it's completely fluid. I don't mm. think, you know, voters go into races often, especially after the golden globes, knowing who the front runner is. Laura Dern was the front runner the entire time. In fact, every single acting contender last year was yeah. um, this year. There's nobody here that you could call a front runner. And, and so that influences not only who gets, who, who ultimately wins, but who gets nominated because there, there, there's a little bit more focus on say a Jodie Foster winning a golden globe. It does mean she has a place in the conversation. Um, Maria did not win the equivalent golden globe for, for best actress, uh, in that case, um, for comedy. And I think that does hurt her because she didn't get that moment that I think she needed to prove, um, much like Jennifer Lopez did not win. she did not win the golden mm-hmm. globe, which we were predicting she would. Um, it's an important legitimizing moment. Um, maybe not in terms for us. I think we believed that Jennifer Lopez was very worthy. I know you did, Joey, but I did too. Mm-hmm. And Maria too. Maria was I very worthy, um, <laughs> is very worthy. But unfortunately, there's just a, there's a stigma. Yeah. Um, Joey, who we, we have, these are ranked in order of likelihood. Who, who would you predict to win this thing? Well, as you said, we're, we're saying earlier today that I've now subscribed to, I think that when you have a year like this and it's just so wide open, people are going to go with the default, which is somebody who is iconic, legendary, and is so well-known and overdue, which is Glenn Close. So, I mean, Mama, <laughs> perhaps swooping back in. Uh, All eyes to, on SAG, for sure. Yes, yes. Oh, I'm so excited. Um Let's move on to Best Supporting Actor. Um, I, I think this is an interesting race, too, although I, I do think there is a front runner. but uh, let, let's go through the list. Number one, Daniel Kaluuya, Judas and the Black Messiah. Number two, Sasha Baron Cohen, Trial of the Chicago 7. Three, Leslie Odom Jr., One Night in Miami. Four, Chadwick Boseman, The Five Bloods. And five, Bill Murray. Well, we actually have switched out uh, Bill Murray for David Strathairn. Um, and Nomadland, which based on another heated conversation ah. this morning. Yes. Late yes. breaking news. Only because I, I agreed that Bill would, would does not necessarily make this five, but it's another case of I don't know who replaces him. One person we didn't talk about, Joey, in that conversation that I'm, I'm looking at now, um, and we have him in supporting here, is Kingsley Benadir. 
uh, for One Night in Miami, who is being pushed as lead. Occasionally, the Academy disagrees with a campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not predicting mm-hmm. him, but he's he's. If One Night in Miami really has a good day uh, next week, he's one to look out for in this category. I, I almost feel like it's more likely to field two contenders than um, than say a Trial of Chicago Seven, where no one is really been able to stand with Sasha Baron Cohen. You know, we've talked about Mark Rylance. Yaya Abdul Mateen II is so great in that movie, but he just hasn't found the the traction uh, because there is such a clear nominee there. There also is one in One Night Miami. Leslie is, is locked to be included here. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, it's just, who knows? <laughs> well, do we also think maybe Chadwick is vulnerable too? Because, uh, y- you know, he's going to have so much support for... Um, uh, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom that maybe people here are like, well, I already voted for him in, in Leeds, so do I really need to vote for him again in supporting? Um, Kingsley, I think his campaign is too confusing for average voters, <laughs> honestly. I like, So <laughs> I, I, I wouldn't even um, really consider him. Um, I mean, we also have to look at the very real possibility that statistically Jared Leto is oh, kind yeah. of in this race so um <laughs> I, I feel that that dying very quickly though um but who knows Jared Leto and his you know amazing hair could show up in this category Steve but I think killery vibes yes yeah. but David Strathairn is that how you say his name Strathairn yeah um, it seems like, as you were saying again earlier today, that when they like a movie, they'll vote down category regardless of the performance Performance sometimes. So he could sneak in that way. The, the other, you know, the other element to think about here is who gets, for lack of a better word, dragged along. Because it's, it's a lot of sort of outlier candidates like a Bill Murray um, or... The Chadwick for Defy Bloods, we're not predicting Defy Bloods for anything else right now. Um, or a Jared Leto, um, which is why I think David Strathairn is an interesting candidate for Nomadland. He's really wonderful in the movie. He hasn't campaigned at all, which explains why he hasn't been showing up anywhere yet. Um, but, you know, like a Marie and Roma, if a movie really can sweep along, um, he's he's one that could easily uh, figure in here. Um, yep. Paul Racy in Sound of Metal is one that had a lot of heat uh, at the start of Critics Award season. He mm-hmm. fell off because he did not get Globe or SAG which in my mind really um, took him out of the five just because the movie has shown up elsewhere. So for him not to, um, not a great sign. Wouldn't it be, I know I'm going back to the women, but you saying that has me now thinking, wouldn't it be hilarious if Swanky got in for supporting actress? <laughs> I was I mean, thinking about Swanky never too. Never. It could happen. Yeah, it that, could happen. That would be amazing. I, I campaign for Swanky. Not over Maria, that's for sure. Yeah, not over Maria, not over Maria. But <laughs> if Swanky gets a nomination, it will be iconic, and I will stand the chaos of it. Yes, everyone's gonna smile at that. I don't think yeah. anyone's gonna get mad at that. <laughs> no, um, no, yeah. except Maria. Yeah. <laughs> Unless, Glenn, unless Glenn. Gold- Oh my God! No, <laughs> imagine Glenn Close losing out to Swanky. <laughs> no. no. Let us, let us not even entertain that possibility. I don't know what we're going to oh, do. Um, <laughs> on that note, <laughs> I, I think this has been an amazing conversation about uh, about the race. I, I still think there's a lot uh, up in the air, and, and it's it's actually exciting. I wonder if it's because of this um, 
strange year. Uh, do, you, do you think the strange year is- Yeah, yeah. It's, it's just harder to pin down. I, I completely agree. I, I think even just watching the Golden Globes, seeing Jodie Foster win, uh, seeing Rosamund Pike win, it's there are there's no way to gauge some of these races because people are watching these movies in a completely different way. They're talking about them in a completely different way. And so it might be a, a nominations morning unlike we've ever seen where the precursors don't say as much, or maybe they say more than ever because that's the visibility people have needed. It's just hard to say. Um, but I think we're trying to sort of skirt the, skirt the middle there uh, and see where, where we land. We have to take a quick break. When we come back, one of our predicted nominees, Amanda Seyfried, joins the awardist to talk about Mank. This episode is brought to you by Peacock, presenting critically acclaimed originals for your Emmy consideration. Stream limited series Apples Never Fall, starring Annette Bening and Sam Neill, and The Tattooist of Auschwitz, based on the best-selling novel. Plus, TV movie Mr. Monk's Last Case, and the stop-motion animated In the Know, from Mike Judge, Brandon Gardner, and Zach Woods. Finally, head to the Highlands with Alan Cumming in the hit competition series The Trade. Peacock is your consideration destination this Emmy season. Welcome back. Here's our interview with Amanda Seyfried, star of Mank. Hi, Amanda. Hey, thanks for having me. Thank you so much for being here. One of my favorite performances of the year. A different take, I think, on Miriam than I've seen before. But I wanted to start really with, with you finding your way into this character. You told um, Entertainment Weekly actually a little while ago that you were you went into this role pretty insecure. I was curious, why why was that? I, I think the idea of playing somebody who existed and, and, and having the responsibility of showing the world or the audience a, a new dimension or a, a different dimension than what they've seen before or, you know, even just introducing this this character to an audience it's just it's uh i was just fraught with with insecurity because i i just wanted to do her justice i just i wanted to um to do it right and maybe in some some way if possible make her proud or make her family proud and i just it was also just because i was working with david fincher yeah (laughs) no small thing I mean, I don't, I, I, I wish I had knocked that off earlier. I did somewhat soon after I started working with David Fincher, I, I, I became more comfortable because he does create a nice space to feel welcome and, and assured and supported. But it's just, there was just two things going against me at first. And also it's nice to have a little nerves because I, I don't, I don't know what artist doesn't at a certain point. In terms of your finding your way into Marion. Did you watch her old films? What kind of research did you do? Um, particularly because I think that this movie brings her out in a lot of different ways, depending on the scene. You know, you see her as this party hostess and this person who loves to have a great time, but she also has these quieter scenes um, with Mank, played by Gary Oldman, of course, um, that that reveal new dimensions to her. Yeah, well, the, the good thing is I did have a lot of um, Marion footage as whatever character she was playing in whichever movie it was. There are a lot of movies available. I started off with um, Kane and Mabel, which is really fun. I mean, she's, she was a comedian. She was really skilled at that. And she was 
really effervescent, which is something that I wanted to capture as well. And that was very evident in the script. That's who she was very alive, very charismatic. And I saw that in her characters, you know, she, she was always uh, playing the madcap woman. And I knew that came from something in her. Of course, there's as actors, a lot of us, from my experience, you take your essence, you work with your essence because you can't really hide that. I mean, some people can, but I, I choose not to because it does help me feel, find, you know, the most natural ways of being, even when I'm in, you know, these fake inauthentic circumstances. Um, the, the footage was, was great, but I think, you know, the script had kind of everything going for it. If I didn't have that footage, I would have been okay, with, especially with David's direction and working opposite so closely with Gary Oldman, who's, you know, just a master of what he does as well. I'd never seen any incarnation of Marion Davies before, and I don't think that was ever something I was considering because I don't want to absorb anybody else's take. And uh, and I didn't watch Citizen Kane before we shot because I didn't want to take anything from Susan, you know, who's clearly based on his relationship with Marion and Hearst. Not that Susan and Marion are the same people at all, but that's what people think. And I didn't want anything to stand in my way because I'm I'm super absorbent. I'm a sponge. And I just needed to be careful. So I also, that's a, this is a very long answer, but I also, I didn't have any footage of her backstage. So I had a lot of freedom mm. in that respect. Yeah. And another thing that struck me was, you know, I've been a fan of yours for a long time and you've done period stuff, of course, like Les Mis and I suppose in a different key, <laughs> Million Ways to Find the West. But um, <laughs> yeah, here you So know, you underrated, be... that movie. <laughs> <laughs> so good. Here you get to be really glamorous and you get to, you know, do the the wig and, and the, the makeup and, and those amazing dresses. How did that help you find the character? I imagine that was a, a fairly new experience for you in terms of screen work. This takes the cake in terms of what the costumes, like how the costumes really transformed me in the set pieces. Yeah. Of course, Lame, I mean, you think of Lame, and those costumes were insane. That's, it's not, I guess what I mean is the glamorous nature of the era of the costumes and the shoes the accessories, the rings, you know, just, you name it, it was just opulent. Yeah. And it was absolutely the opposite of the world I'm living in. And therefore took me so much further than any accessory, any prop has ever taken me. So that was definitely a plus in working in that era. I mean, I never really expected in my career to be able to play a 1930s, 40s era movie star. So that was just also like a dream I never thought I had. Yeah. There's a beat to it, too, you know, in, in the way that David conceives the movie, um, very much of the era. What was that element of performance like, you know, the, the sort of patter and, the, and, the, and the, the, the balance, I suppose, that he, he strikes there? I was not conscious. The, 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 one of the things that intimidated me in the beginning was stepping into this person's shoes in this era and, and how they spoke to each other and, and the, the it's it's like Jimmy Stewart, just the way he speaks. That's how I hear these movie stars speak. And, and, you know, it's just, it wasn't exactly that every time, every performance I'd seen of hers, but it was, you know, you, just, you, you know, sugar, you got this. It's, it's, this is the caricature in my head of how people spoke because that's how people spoke. Yeah. <laughs> and I was not ever inclined to go that route. I, I was hoping David wasn't going to ask that of me. The only thing we talked about in terms of the speaking, the rhythm of that was that I was going to have an, an accent, a slight Brooklyn accent, which is comes easier to me than, than most than any other accent, really. And then the uh, 
the dialogue was so transformative. Like when you when you are speaking the words on the page, there's a rhythm that's created by that that you're just kind of following. I was never that aware of it. I was never that conscious of how I sounded, of how it felt, of how it sounded to everybody else. I was just, you know, speaking words, the, the dialogue, doing the scene with my accent and hoping that it, it that I fit in into that into that world because that was a fear of mine. I feel like I'm too modern and uh, I, I proved myself wrong. <laughs> Did you practice your on nerds though? I can't say it as well as you. <laughs> I can't say it either. You can. My husband was like, I I actually said nerds out loud the other day when I was alone with our son. Oh wow! And I was like, what? But I think <laughs> it. I saw the movie twice, three months apart, and for some reason, nerds keeps coming into my head, and I keep using it. And I'm like, that isn't. I don't. That is not something that's happening to me anywhere in my body. So I said it. I was like, oh nerds, oh nerds. Like I can't. And David said it a lot, actually. You get it in your system and you can't, it never comes out. It's really fun. I love it. You can see it on screen. It is it is a fun performance. I can see you like embracing that stuff in a lot of ways. Okay, good. You mentioned the sort of atmosphere that David created on set. What for you, in terms of collaboration, did you bring, did you find yourself working with David on once you really got to the filming of the movie? God, um... Everything we worked together was more, I mean, he'd be at the monitor and then he'd be on set with notes. And, I mean, everything was such a collaboration from the very beginning. So I think all that work kind of carried into the set and it became less about create what we were creating and more about just being in the moment now, which is ideal and also very rare these days. But I think, I mean, it was mostly just a give and take for me. I was taking everything he was giving me and the notes were very, very specific. There were at least three or four of them every time he came in after each take. And if I could remember half of them, I was winning in my own head. And he was, I mean, he's so articulate in, in what he needs, which is like a dream for me, because I know exactly what he's saying and what he, I know exactly what he's asking for. And I was just kept, you know, trying to give him as many colors as possible, but that's really, that's the work on set. It's less long conversations about what's happening between these characters and in the inner, with the inner life and, and in the story and more about just finding specific moments and making sure you, it's a well-rounded scene that, that he has every possible opportunity to show what's happening and every, you know, no stone left unturned. I'm curious too, did it feel different to you? You know, you've worked with, People like David Lynch and, and Noah Baumbach and, and Paul Schrader, like people who have who are known sort of for their distinctive ways of, of filmmaking, um, go, having those past experiences, what was that like coming into this one? He, uh, the thing that's similar between all of the people that you've mentioned is that they all come completely prepared and come with a very specific idea of what they need. And that is one of the most incredible feelings when you're walking on someone's set and you know that they know what they want and therefore it's up to you to just give them what they really want. And um, not to say that I don't have ideas of things in the, in, and that it wasn't a, a collaboration in some ways, but just to know that this person who's at the, the, the boss who's running the entire show knows exactly what they want. There's just, 
trust, full trust that I'm gonna, that they're gonna get what they need from me. I just feel like I'm, I'm safe. And David was no different from them in that way. But the way he does things is very different in that he, he does multiple takes. And of course, that's what everybody knows about him. But the thing that people don't talk about is why. And the why is so important because like I said, no stone left unturned. I'm not gonna go to bed at night and think, God, I did that terribly. I really should have given that more time. I really should have been more prepared for that particular moment because I actually felt lost. There was no way I was ever gonna feel any regret. I couldn't have. I mean, I had every opportunity to master each moment and find little things. Like you do on the last show of a play, like the last night, the last performance, there's no regrets because you've, you've had every opportunity. So you play the kind of role that you never could see yourself as. You have this great experience. What do you discover about yourself as an actor coming out of a project like this? I'm so lazy. I'm so lazy. And I wish I was joking when I said that. I mean, I've said it a lot lately because that it is the, the, the main thing that I've come away with is that I'm, I'm lazy due to impatience and um, enthusiasm for like everything that's going on. And I'm lazy because I, I'm, I'm very social on set. Like I'm, there's all these things that take away from the work itself which is a hard thing to admit. And I, I'm very, I'm, I am pretty self-aware and I, I do explore the whys of my behaviors. And this, I just never really paid attention to until I was um, like face to face with it on this set. At times I would be frustrated because I didn't feel like I was understanding or I was understanding what, what David wanted, but maybe I didn't feel like I was, I was really getting there in the time that I thought I should get there. And that's not the way he measures things. And, and so I'm like, I need to let myself off the hook, first of all. And I need to just know that if I want to get the, um, that end results quicker, I need to come with more information. I need to come knowing more about everything that's going to be happening on that day. I still have, I still have dreams that I, I don't remember my lines or I don't know my lines. And so like in, you know, when I was 33, I did three movies back to back. Mank was the last one. And I would come to set on two other movies before Mank with my sides in my hands. And I, we were rehearsing on set in our, in our costumes about to shoot it. And I'd be looking at my sides because I didn't necessarily know all the lines. And I'm just like, I know the lines when it comes to the very end, like when we're actually rolling, I know the lines. But up until that point, sometimes I don't. And that's not gonna work for me anymore. It's not gonna internally, whatever it, ha whatever it does to me, it doesn't work, it creates, a whole mess of problems. So yeah, thank you, David Fincher, for that message that mm. I could get myself. <laughs> it must have felt odd too, you know, having a major experience like that. And then for circumstances beyond all of our control, you, you don't really have a next project to go to necessarily. What has it been like to sort of sit with it? <laughs> Fine. I, I gotta say, like, I'm busy doing like the most important thing in life, for sure. Like, having a baby and taking care of my baby and my kids and just if I if I hadn't been pregnant this whole year and hadn't had him recently I I would probably I would be bent out of shape in some way creatively and I would have found a way to make it okay so yeah I, I think I'm, I'm okay for now but someone did ask me what my next project was and I'm like I don't have one and it used like 10 years ago that would have freaked me out to the point of believing that I might never work again. But now I know that it's, it'll be fine. And I'm, I'm, I'm okay to wait until things are a little bit more normal. We're not there. We will be. 
I would agree with that. We are not. <laughs> you know, in, in these past few months, have you found yourself reflecting, you sort of mentioned 10 years ago versus now, and coming off a role like this, just the trajectory of where you've gone, where you'd like to go from here? Obviously, we are in a pause, and I think it's nice to sort of be comfortable <laughs> in the pause. Um, but yeah, I'm just curious how that process has been for you, just sort of thinking, really. The, the thing about... Um, it's not the pandemic necessarily that's got me thinking about it at all. It was because I was so focused on, you know, the here and now and what was happening at home. Mm. But it's it's these interviews and these um, and talking about Mank with with so many different people and with with my co-stars and with David. It's just I, you know, I've I've gone down memory lane with a, with a few people now and I'm and I've said this before, but I had no expectations because I just deliberately did not want to feel disappointment down the line. So mm -hmm. I, my main goal in my career was always just to work. I just wanted to be, con I just wanted to be trusted with a role. I wanted to people be, I wanted people to be like, oh, Amanda Seyfried, oh, she could play that. Like, that's just what I wanted. I didn't need to have the spotlight on me at any point. And I'm really glad that the first major point in my career where there is a spotlight on me and discussion surrounding my a performance of mine is when I'm this age, feeling this mm. fear in myself and feeling this confident in general, not necessarily every day in every role, but in general, like I'm, I'm totally cool with my life and my choices and career and, you know, my personal life. It's like, I, I think that this, is, it's good that it's happened now and I'm, I don't have any regrets and I'm thrilled about what's been happening in, in this role and, and people saying wonderful things and there's nothing I would have done differently. And going forward, I, of course, I'm going to work less. I mean, you know, this pandemic, what's happening, it's, it's horrible. Yeah. Really wish it hadn't happened. Really wish we didn't have this virus. But of course, I look at the silver lining all the time because you have to think in order yeah. to, you know, make sense of your life. And I get to be home. And now I'm like, I don't know how much, how often I'm going to want to leave anymore. Hmm. I love working, but maybe this is the opportunity that I've been looking for to be able to be pickier. And, and so if that's the case, it will be. And hopefully every opportunity gives you another opportunity. So this opportunity working with such a master like David Fincher is going to hopefully open the door to working with people of his caliber. Mm -hmm. Not many of them, but we know who those people are and yeah, that'd be nice. Well, I'd love to see that. <laughs> Back to Mank, my last question for you is about a, um, probably my favorite scene in the movie. I, I just wanted to get your thoughts on that, this moment for Marion, because it's really the one where she was kind of unlocked for me. It's, it's the scene at San Simeon where you're walking um, with Mank and, and Marion sort of recites this passage that Upton Sinclair had written uh, about her and Hearst. Um, and and it just, I love the way you played it so much because it's like she remembers it and she's kind of fighting through remembering it almost. And I was just kind of, I was kind of knocked out by it. So I'm, I'm curious what that scene meant to you. Well, I will say when we wrapped that scene, it was the last scene before Christmas break. I think I cried. I was so happy. It's beautiful. I, because we had done it many times and it was hard to get. And he doesn't need a perfect take. He takes moments. Thank God. And I just remember really struggling at times with it because there was a physical challenge, which is that I was barefoot and it was 40 degrees, seven in the morning at that point. 
when we were uh-huh. starting it. So it was tough. It was a half day. Yeah, it was really cold. And I, I knew it so well, but I, but I was falling all over myself at, at, at certain points and, um, and having a, a wonderful time reciting it because it's the dialogue's just so edible. And does that make any sense? I've never said that before. I kind of love that. <laughs> yeah, it's delicious. And everything about it felt like it fit. I was very comfortable in marrying at that point because I had been playing her for, for about a m- month straight. So by the end, I was just like, what did you, what did you say? And he was like, cut rap. And I was like, oh my, oh my God, Merry Christmas to me. I actually said that out loud. And, uh, and he laughed a little bit cause he knew that I was, I was struggling a tiny bit, um, a lot. Oh God. I just, I get her so much in that scene. I get her so much in general. Um, but I really just love how, when it goes from the scene on the marble, um, bench to him picking her up and then walking past the monkeys. And hmm. David had me say, I used to could quote it word for word. I used to could quote it. Yeah. I used to could quote it. And it's such a Brooklyn thing. It's such a New York thing. And um, it's so funny because she can quote it word for word and she's clearly kept it. She has, she's not bitter. She's a, not a bitter person. This is what's so beautiful about the scene, but she, she holds things and she understands what they mean to people. And she understands how misunderstood she is. And, and she's almost okay with that. She wants to be okay with it, but there's something about her that isn't, and that's okay. She, that, that she's not bitter, but she still knows the entire, she can re- recite all of it. And it's just really funny that she's like, I used to quote it. I, I used to do that. Um, and she keeps talking and it's like, it just shows kind of her Marion in a nutshell. She's just a kind, comfortable person and nothing really gets her going, but she is able to get as close to that as she can with Meg. And you can see why they connect so well. Perfectly put. Thank you so much, Amanda, for joining us. Thank you. Well, that's all from us today. Thanks for joining us on this episode of The Awardist. And thanks to Joey, as always, for his analysis and expertise and, and sparing us, really, from any Penguin Bloom references this time. I think you jinxed yourself a little bit. Uh, I was not the one who brought it up this episode, <laughs> so I cannot be blamed. It's true. We all did, except for you. <laughs> Please subscribe and listen along every week, wherever you get your podcasts. Rate us. Tell us what you think. Share it with your friends. You can also head to ew.com awardist for complete coverage of this year's Oscar race and Monday's nominations. And follow me on Twitter at DavidCampfield97, Clarissa at ClarissaNYC1, and Joey at JoeyNolfi. We will be back on Oscar nominations day next week to break down all the snubs and surprises and admit what we were wrong about and also gloat about what we're right about. We have nothing to say this week, obviously. Um, And we'll also possibly be joined by a nominee. uh, So stay tuned for that. Thank you so much for listening. Again, this has been The Awardist.